grateful, always grateful for the worship team and the work that they put in to do such a great job in leading us to praise and worship the Lord uh, through song. One of the primary ways He has established for us to worship Him. Uh, music just brings us all together, doesn't it? Cross-culturally, cross, uh, internationally, we, 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 we come together around music. One of my fond memories is in Italy many, many years ago, um, or actually the Czech Republic, and I started playing the guitar. I had a guitar, started playing some praise songs, and the, the, the Americans were singing in English, the Czech were singing in Czech, and uh, it was a beautiful time. They knew the melodies, and we were just praising the Lord together. I always want to add a line to that song Jesus is better than all temptation Jesus is better make my heart believe he's better than anything and that's one of the big themes in Hebrews my name by the way is Brad Talley I'm the teaching elder here at Grace thanks for coming this morning if this is your first time we're so glad that you're here if you've been here at Grace for any length of time in this study that we're doing in the book of Hebrews you've heard me say repeatedly that Hebrews may be the best book of the Bible that teaches us or shows us how the Scripture all fits together. We're going to get into a little bit of that um, today. And that may sound really exciting at first, like, you know, hey, good, I'm going to see how the Bible works and it's going to all happen here in Hebrews. And then you get into it and you think, wow, this is really, this is pretty hard. This is pretty challenging. And, and, and I, I, there's nothing I enjoy better than taking a really complicated passage of Scripture, one that I'm like, I don't, and, and working through it with the help of the Holy Spirit and then making it simple so that you would say, yeah, of course it says that. That's what I know I've done a good job. When you say, well, sure, everybody knows that. That's really simple. And it's... And I thought I had done that last week. And then several of you were wandering around in the, in the lobby saying, I don't know about Melchizedek. I don't know about Melchizedek. <laughs> and we got the home group and they were going, I don't know about Melchizedek. When I realized that we had 18 verses of Melchizedek left in Hebrews 7, I thought, this is great. Well, that's not what I thought at all. I thought... Oh, Lord, what am I going to do? Help. And then David came back from a luncheon that he attended in Wake Forest. And he was talking about how the speaker spoke about parallelism and the ways that the Hebrews writer, Hebrew writers used repetitive uh, different uh, thoughts to help bring home uh, a point. We all know about parallelism uh, in, in, in Psalm one hundred. Verse 5, it's essentially saying the same thing in different ways. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. We see this over and over. It was in Psalm 46. I was paying special attention to it because I knew I was going to be talking about parallelism. It's all the way there. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a greater picture. Uh, the thing that struck David so much was... The speaker was talking about it's like hearing a song in stereo. If you've got headphones on, and of course, you know, with music, that really attracted David's attention. But I, I got to thinking about the ways that this happens in Hebrews, and I, sort of a plan began to take shape in my mind about how we're going to 
deal with these next chapters where there is a great deal of uh, repetition. But look at Psalm 105. The Lord is good. Let's think of another way to say that. His steadfast love endures forever. And is there another way? And his faithfulness to all generations. It is truth writ large. It's expansive, fulsome, complete. In stating the same truth in different ways, you get a bigger picture of exactly what it is that God is seeking to communicate. And in this case, as it so often is in Scripture, when you see parallelism or repetitive thought, it's not only a bigger picture, but it becomes personal. I mean, how can you look at this verse as a child of God and not understand the Lord's great love for you? And for your children and your grandchildren that you're so worried about growing up in a world that is very different from the one in which you grew up. God is good to us. More than convinced about God's love for you, you're just wrapped up in it. Well, beginning where our text begins, actually where it began last week's in Hebrews 7, 1, and then going all the way through <clears throat> Hebrews 10, the author of this lengthy sermon <clears throat> is going to use his own skillful version of repetitive truth to forcefully bring home exactly what it is that he wants his readers to understand, the, the hearers of this sermon, and that what he wants them to know about God's big picture. R- remember, These original readers were Jewish mostly, if not almost exclusively. This letter written to a small group of Jewish believers in a house church in Rome, we would, is our best guess. And so uh, they would appreciate the style of writing. It's it's, it's done more so here than it is in a lot of New Testament. Uh, letters. When you look at the letters of Paul, he's making an argument. He builds on that argument, but he's he's usually moving forward. This writer of Hebrews is kind of, you know, he's kind of he's moving forward, but he's doing it, you know, kind of like this, and he's he's making the same point over and over. Uh, the literary device of repetition in the Old Testament was not limited to parallelism in poetry. Again. He would say things, they, the writers would say things in different ways. And true to form, in the book of Hebrews, the author writes in such a way that if something is worth saying once, it's worth saying four or five times. And, and as is the case we've already seen, he'll take a verse or a passage of Scripture and use it again and again. So that's what's going to be happening in the next three and a half chapters. First, there'll be repetition, then there will be more repetition. That's a good thing on a number of levels, not the least of which is the depth of richness of the material in these texts and and, and the benefit that it does to us to help us understand. But it can be a bit cumbersome, you know, when you're reading the same thing over and over, uh, and especially if you're not particularly used to that style of... of, um, of of teaching. So we're going to be attacking this large body of material over the next few months. 
Uh, and we're going to go through the text systematically like we have been doing so far with paragraphs or units of thought uh, being addressed. But I'm not going to take as much time as I have been explaining the exact details of the text for, for one reason, because it's being said. It'll be said over and over. And as it's being said, it'll, it'll take root in our hearts and minds. Um, for each section of Scripture, what we're going to do is emphasize an important theme that are big picture themes in all of Scripture and are quite prominent in Hebrews. And it's going to look something like this, although I reserve to tweak this a bit as we go. We're going to talk about law and gospel. Do you understand the difference between law and gospel and how it, that theme plays out in Scripture? And then two covenants, old and new. You know, a lot of people, you hear a lot of people say, well, I'm not an Old Testament kind of person. I'm a New Testament kind of person. God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament. He's a God of love in the New Testament. Is that accurate? Is that true? We're going to talk about that. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How important is the blood of Jesus? What does it do exactly? What is, what's the big deal? This bloody religion people talk about. What is the big deal? Shadows and substance. Hebrews talks about shadows. Pictures. Vague impressions of the real thing. And then there's the perfect human sacrifice. And it's only perfect because it's a divine sacrifice as well as a human sacrifice. One who is divine is being sacrificed. And then the community of faith. We started off this whole series with this text, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. We'll go back to it and look at it from a different angle. Same truth, just, just a, 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 a more <clears throat> complete look at that particular text. And then there's warning and waiting and waiting. You could just substitute the word trusting. Warning and waiting. So that's seven sessions over seven weeks, correct? As Lee Corso would say, not so fast, my friend. Uh, Preachers can tend to be, if nothing else, long-winded. So many of these sessions may be two weeks long as this first session is going to be. But I think you're going to find, I hope that you will find that each of these these themes that we're going to be, be, be learning about will be profitable, not only again just for your understanding of Hebrews, but for your understanding of Scripture as a whole. This first theme, law and gospel. If you were forced to give a definition of law and gospel, what would it be? You might begin by saying, well, the Old Testament tells us about law, the New Testament tells us about the gospel. But if Old Testament saints were saved by grace, is there any gospel in the Old Testament? And... If a person must come face to face with his his condemnation under the law before he believes the good news of Jesus Christ, is there any law in the New Testament? And furthermore, uh, does the law have any impact at all for believers? What do we have to say? We're going to talk about that. Uh, Next Sunday, we're going to talk about that. Today we're going to look at Hebrews 7, 11 to 28 with an eye toward that breakdown of law and gospel 
that we'll go into detail about next week. While this same text is going to be our foundation next week, it's going to, the, the theme is going to take us to other places in Scripture, Romans in particular, uh, to think about law and gospel. This morning, as we read through the text, look for the distinctions. I've highlighted some in white uh, on the screen. You'll see some, but I didn't, I didn't get it all. I was just getting some of the main stuff there that sort of emphasizes law or gospel. Here's one of the, one, here's one of the challenges you're going to have seeing law and gospel in Hebrews. The author hardly ever uses the word gospel. Almost never. Another reason that I'm not so sure Paul wrote this book, you cannot turn around in the letters of Paul without running in the gospel, but he doesn't use the term here. It's good news. It's in chapter 4, 2, and I'm not sure that it's anywhere else in Hebrews. But, but gospel truth is all over the book of Hebrews. The gospel that Paul talks about is the truth that is explained in detail in Hebrews. So, before we get to our primary text, Hebrews 7, 11 to 28, we're going to look at the first four verses of Psalm 110. Why? Because we know that Hebrews is based on a lot of Old Testament text, but Psalm 110 is the primary text. It's the one from which all of his thoughts flow, and we're going to think about How Psalm 110 came to be. How did David write that? So, as we begin our time together, we're going to read Psalm 100, verses 1 through 4. If you would, please stand as we read God's Word together. The Lord says to my Lord, by the way, in in the... In your Bibles, if you you got it, it, I should have put it up there. It says a Psalm of David. It's in the title. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He's talking about a king, isn't he? David is talking about a king. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Well, Lord, uh, we pray that you will make this complicated uh, argument about Jesus being your Messiah. And more than that, Jesus is God. Make it clear to us. It's important that we understand that we might not only be convinced fully in our hearts, but that we would gladly share this word to those who don't know Jesus. May he be exalted in our midst this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. There are actually seven verses in Psalm 110, but we will content ourselves with considering these first four verses. So what's the context of Psalm 110? What do you think is happening as David wrote? 
There's a pretty strong possibility that David one day was having his devotions. And he was looking at Genesis 14. You remember Genesis 14 from last week? Moses rescued Lot. And what happened? He was coming back and Melchizedek, the priest of of Jerusalem, the priest of God, priest of the Most High God from Jerusalem, king of Salem, king of peace, comes out and Abraham, he brings bread and wine to Abraham. Bread and wine. Jesus, remember? And, And Abraham gives a tenth of all his spoils to Melchizedek. So David probably... Thinking about that, and he's he, he's he's thinking, you know, priest and king. That's really interesting. I mean, the Mosaic law does not allow that one person to hold both offices, priest and king. Kings come from the from the line of Judah or from any other line, but no king can come from the li- line of Levi. Ultimately, it settled into Judah, and then it's the the kings always came from Judah in the south after that. In the north, they were from all different kinds of tribes. But not only did the Mosaic law say no Levite can be a king, but Saul, King Saul, who was David's predecessor, you remember what happened to him? He was waiting on Samuel to come and offer sacrifices because they were going to war with the Philistines. And, and man, the the... The Jews, the, the, the Jewish army was melting away while they waited on Samuel. So finally, Saul said, look, I've got to do something. And he offered sacrifices. Samuel showed up immediately. What did he say? You did what was not right for you to do. The kingdom is taken away from you. So David is thinking, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Saul was thrown out of his office of king God put an end to his kingdom because he offered sacrifices. But in in, in Genesis 14, there's clearly one who is both priest and king. And David knew it was a part of God's plan. And so he wrote, verse 4, in his writings, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest Forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now who's he talking about? He's talking about a king. Look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter ruled in the midst of your enemies. He's talking about a king. And he's saying that this king is a priest. Not from the line of Aaron, which is where priests come from. But a special kind of priest king. Psalm 110 becomes extremely important for followers of Christ. When Jesus was making his claim to be Messiah uh, before the Pharisees, he quoted Psalm 110, verse 1. In Matthew 22, Jesus asked the Pharisees to think about his claims. Here's what he said. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked asked them a question, saying, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? Jesus is asking, who is the Messiah? Whose son? What tribe does the king come from? They said to him, the son of David. And so 
Look, look, the Pharisees never minded engaging Jesus in debate. Jesus would ask them questions. That's the way uh, things were taught in that day. And everybody understood that. They, they never minded Jesus asking them a question. You know how it is when somebody asks you a question and you can see that they're leading you down a road. Sometimes you want to say, that's not fair. That's not a fair question. And what are you doing that for? I do that all the time, just so you'll know. I ask questions. I try to lead you down a road. But you oftentimes say things that change my direction, too, in my thinking. But Jesus would ask, and he always had the right answer. But they always thought they could best him. And so they said, Jesus said, whose son is, is, um, is the Christ? Who, where does the Messiah come from? And they said to him, the son of David. Everybody knows that. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, and they knew it. There's all kinds of reasons I can make an argument for that. I won't go into it now. But they said, he's a son of David. Even though David may not have fully understood the implications of what he was writing about when he wrote Psalm 110, by the time of Jesus All the Jews knew exactly who David was talking about. The Messiah. David may have had just a basic conception at that point. But now everybody says this is written about the coming Messiah. And so Jesus said to them. And this is just about the last conversation Jesus had with the Pharisees. And every single time he says, you've missed the whole point. You know the Old Testament every way imaginable, and yet you've missed the whole point, which is me. So he says to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls his descendant, wherever that may come down the road, Lord? That just wouldn't happen. Verse 44 says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies or your enemies under your feet. And then Jesus says this If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one dared ask him another word, nor from that day did they ask him any more questions. Can we first note that verse 46 describes one of the wisest moves the Pharisees made in their encounters with Jesus? They just didn't ask him any more questions because every single time they came to him with questions, he just showed them to be the misguided, intentional fools that they were. Do you get the point that Jesus was making? He he was saying, look, David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. So when David said, Yahweh said to my Lord, to whom was he referring? Yahweh said to a son of David. Yahweh said to one who would come from David's line, you were my Lord. And David knew that this person would be greater than he is. And essentially, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you acknowledge the truth of this verse, but you've not thought it all the way through. A human being will be David's Lord. You fail to see that it's possible that I am the Son of God. 
And since they had no answer, they shut their mouths. So, here's the question. Does this make sense to you? If so, raise your... No, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. I would be too hurt, I think, if that were the case. Um, Does this make sense to you, or is it still confusing? I don't know if this will encourage you at all or not. But several years ago, I heard D.A. Carson preaching on Psalm 110, and I got some of it. But there was a lot that I'm like, you know, I just, I, it, it's just unclear. It's a little bit vague in my mind. When I reviewed those notes for the preparation of this sermon, I understood it completely. One I got it all. And then some. Even if it feels like all of this is flying miles above your head, at the very least, there are little parachutes, you know, landing like some of the commercials about the games the video games, and, and they're landing in your head and they are pieces of a puzzle. And you may be thinking, I don't want to work on that puzzle like we talked about last week. It's too complex. It's too complicated. But it's the puzzle of your life in relation to God through Jesus. And one day, what you are presently hearing about the book of Hebrews and all of these things about Jesus will turn into what you have learned about Hebrews. And when that happens, the beauty of God's intricate design will begin to blossom, not only in your heart, but in your mind. I don't expect that we're going to encounter anything in Hebrews from here out that's as technical is what we already have and what we find in chapter 7. But we're, So what we're going to do is to work our way through the rest of chapter 7 quickly. And I do mean quickly. And afterwards I'll share a few observations to help bring this text to our contemporary world. And to prepare our hearts for next week. You'll see uh, parts of the verses again highlighted on the screen. Which emphasize the law gospel dichotomy in the text. Start with verse 11. Now, if perfection, uh, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Two things about verse 11, and and these are key for the whole text. First, make no mistake about this. The law demands perfection. The scales ain't going to do you any good when you stand before God because they're going to be like this and it's not going to be in your favor. The law demands perfection. It cannot give life. It only condemns those who fail to keep it. And that would be all of us. It cannot give life. It only condemns those who are unable to keep it. There's nothing wrong with the law, but there's there's something bad wrong with us. We will never achieve perfection by keeping the law. And that leads us to the second thought from verse 11. When the author of Hebrews talks about the Levitical priesthood, he's talking about priests in light of their connection with the law. Do you remember when we were in Hebrews 1 and it says, Jesus is better than angels. And we're like, what? What? 
Jesus, why is he talking about angels? He has this incredible introduction in the first three verses. And then he says, talks about Jesus' superiority to angels. Well, the, the Jews believed that angels brought the law to Moses. And so almost every time he says, Jesus is better than this, Jesus is better than that, Jesus is better than this person, that person, that group of people, it all comes back to the law. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the Levitical priesthood in relation to the law. Under it, the people under the Levitical priesthood, they were the preachers. They preached the word. They gave the law. So, Jesus is better than the law, but since the law does not allow someone from the tribe of Judah to be a priest, there seems to be contradiction in calling Jesus a high priest. Except, as David first noted in Psalm 110, the Messiah will be a priest king, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. How big a deal is that? Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, wait a minute. This is God's perfect law. This is dramatic. A change in the law. And no human can affect that change. There's nothing you can do to manipulate the law. You may manipulate the law to look good in the eyes of people around you, but you can't manipulate it to look good in the eyes of God. And unless provision is made for you, you're condemned. It's hopeless. But God made provision. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. Nobody from Judah served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. For on one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, by the way. Hope, anytime you see hope in the book of Hebrews, gospel. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So here it all is in verses 18 and 19. The law made nothing perfect. Perfection is required. Hopeless. Very quickly, though, we're told that a better hope is introduced through Jesus, through the gospel, and in Jesus, we draw near to God. I say that it's all here in these two verses, but we'll say that over and over in Hebrews. Here it all is, right here. It sums it all up. But if you don't know what you're looking for, you miss it. But when you know what you're looking for, it's like, it's, it's mind-blowing. Verse 20. 
And it was not without an oath. In other words, Jesus just didn't decide this on his own. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Where's that? Where have we seen that verse? Oh, yeah, just three verses ago, whatever. And then in Matthew and then in Psalm 110. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. That's a little preview on Old Covenant, New Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You, you know, well, how many presidents have we had? Even if they could serve for the rest of their lives, how it, you have to have somebody new. But he holds his priesthood permanently, Jesus does, because he continues forever. Consequently... Because he is a priest and he continues to be a priest, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Holy, innocent unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Everything that we're not, in regard to the law, Jesus was and is. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, what's the word of the oath? Psalm 110. You are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is the, is the, is the oath that he's talking about. And it came later than the Mosaic law. The word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The author of Hebrews reminds us repeatedly that Jesus is better. And why do we agree that he is better? Because he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to to God through him by faith. The scripture in other places would add. So as we prepare our hearts and minds for law and gospel next week and talk about how this theme is all the way through scripture, let's think about a few of the implications from this text uh, that Jesus is better. First of all, when our situation is hopeless, Jesus brings hope. Perfection is what the law requires, but none of us is capable. In fact, not one of us is close. Now, that may not mean that much to 21st century men and women who have been told all of their lives, good job, honey, good job. You're the best. You get a blue ribbon. You... The the statistics are staggering at how 
millennials think about themselves compared to the way people who were their age 50 years ago thought about themselves. And how they understood their place in the world. It is stunning that we create, we'll talk about this next week, we create this false reality. That we want everybody else to see. And we live and die on the number of likes. So whatever it is you get. Hearts. Whatever your, your, your vanity of choice is. Allison says, we got so many likes. I say, life is worth living. Life is worth living, Dave. <laughs> we mean something now. Our lives count. And you know how we view God in this, in this society? We view God as a luxury. He's not the creator and the one to whom each person will stand naked and without excuse. And must give an account. When you face your mortality though. You start thinking about what's next, don't you? And when you think of your life and you wonder if your life has measured up to God's standard, it hasn't. The standard is the law and the law requires perfection. And unless provision is made for you, there is only hopelessness as you prepare to meet your creator. You remember what it was like sitting outside the principal's office well, maybe you don't. I, I remember that very well. Um, and, you know, there's just, oh, you just, good news. Gospel. Jesus, God in the flesh has already talked about it here. Lived the life. He was holy, innocent. He lived the life we were incapable of living. And when he died on the cross, God the Father he, Jesus bore our sins and the Father poured out all of his wrath towards sin on Jesus. That doesn't mean the sins of everyone are forgiven. For those who say, I believe that Jesus died in my place. I acknowledge I'm a sinner and I am everything the law says that I am. Or the law condemns me for its just condemnation. I believe Jesus took that condemnation for me. And then we can say in Romans 8.1. There is therefore there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have better words ever been spoken. Look if you're here this morning. And all of this is gobbledygook to you. But you know something's not right in your life. And you know I, I, I mean, I'm doing my best, but it just doesn't feel like it's enough. It's because it's not enough, but that's okay. If you're willing, there's one who died for you. Jesus died for your sins. And he's not asking you to just say, hey, cool, that's good, and then go on about your way. He wants all of your life. But when you come and you bow before that cross and you say, oh, Jesus, save me. I believe you died for me. Immediately you are made a child of God. And the wrath of God that is rightly on you now will disappear. And you know what these 
people in Hebrews struggle with. It's not that they were worried about just going and living like the devil. They just wanted to be religious. And, and hopefully my good works will get me there. And the author said, nope. It's not about your good works. Law condemns all works. Because if you're guilty in one area, you're guilty of the whole thing. Your only hope is in Jesus. When our situation is hopeless... Jesus brings hope. And you know why that's so? Because when we believe, his righteousness is credited to our account. And when God sees you, he looks at you and he says, you're perfect. Because he sees Jesus. Can you believe that? I mean, your spouse surely doesn't see you as perfect, right? You don't look in the mirror and say, perfection. Um, but God sees you through Jesus. Stunning news. Not just good news, stunning news. Second, Jesus is better because he provides stability in an unstable world. Now, there is a possibility that some of you are concerned that some of our presidential candidates are not playing with a full deck. Um, it, 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 you may have a legitimate you know, concern here. But if you think these guys are bad, you should have lived in Rome as a Christian under Nero. Especially at a time when it was convenient for Nero to blame Christians for the problems in the Roman Empire. When you're fully committed to the one who is better than anything or anybody else... There is stability even when the world around you falls apart. Are you certain? Are you confident that you are politically correct? Are you sure you've been here over an hour? You know, I mean, it changes every... Oh, wait a minute. You have your devices. and uh, So, yes, you might know that. Look, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know where that's found? Hebrews 13. He's going to say that. We're going to get to that. Last, in Jesus, we are blessed with full forgiveness. He saves them to the uttermost. One of the biggest concerns that you have as a believer, no doubt, is that you continue to sin. And, and, and you sin when you thought you had conquered this thing. That's the problem. Look, we're trying to conquer sin. If sin is going to be conquered, it's going to be Jesus conquering it, living through us. And you know what that means? That means that the gospel is just as important to believers as it is to unbelievers. And that we have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. If you live a holy life, it will be because your hope is fully set on the one who has fully forgiven you. I saw a quote this past week and I couldn't make it out. It's on Twitter and I couldn't make out if the author is Jessica Thompson or Daniel Price, but I have to share it. I outright reject a Christianity that is about creating a people who look like they don't need Christ. The less you think you need Christ, the more you need Him. The more you know about God, the less you are going to be tempted to think that you need Him. The more we know about Him, the easier it is to live without Him. Until we get over that hump and we see 
the depths of the truth of the book of Hebrews that our only hope in any place in this world or the next is in Jesus Christ. We do need Jesus. The gospel continues to inform our lives long after we're brought into the family of God and the, and the law has no longer any power to condemn us. The gospel continues to work in our lives. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Lord, the, the amazing thing is that you know us and you love us. You know us at our best, which is not good enough. And you know us at our worst. And you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die for us. And you also, you want us to know what it means that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords and we think of him in that manner. But in your plan, it was necessary that he be the priest who takes the offering of his blood right into the presence of the Father. And offers it on our behalf. Thank you Lord. For love at that level. We're grateful. We're humbled by it. We ask that you would fill it. Fill us so much with it. That we would treat others in the ways that you have treated us, that we would forgive as we are forgiven, that we would love as we are loved. And that through our lives that are so totally given over to you, the fragrance of Jesus will attract others. We know that the judgment of God will also be given off. Make sure, Lord, that it is the gospel, the law and the gospel and not us as individuals trying to affect anything. If the law is going to be changed in anybody's life from law to gospel, it's going to be Jesus. We depend on you. We throw ourselves on you, afresh and anew. Amen. And from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to prevent you to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said.